Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guests today are Brian Finucan, Senior Advisor at International Crisis Group, and Brianna Rosen, a Senior Fellow with Just Security. I welcome you both to the show. Um, Russia's war in Ukraine and increasing tensions with China has put a lot of focus on managing relationships with other major powers. Uh, and one of the drawbacks of that is that there's much less attention to the ongoing war on terror and the expanded executive war powers that have been handed down since 9-11. Brian, I want to start with you. Um, can you just explain the scope of executive branch war powers that were initiated after 9-11 and persist to this day in expanded form? Right, sure. When we're talking about the president's war powers, we're talking about two major areas. The first are his powers under his, his or her powers under Article Two of the Constitution, primarily as Commander-in-Chief. Um, the second are statutory uh, war powers that have been granted to him by Congress. And that's really what's at issue with respect to the post-9-11 U.S. war on terror. In the immediate aftermath of the attacks on the United States by al-Qaeda, um, Congress enacted a very broadly worded war authorization um, known as the 2001 Authorization of Use of Military Force. Now, that law was initially... <clears throat> targeted to al-Qaeda and the Taliban, um, that's to say the actors who carried out the attacks and those who harbored them. But over the past 20 years, um, the executive branch has stretched that authorization to include new groups um, in new places that had nothing to do with the uh, attacks of 9-11. Um, these notably include ISIS, uh, first in Iraq and Syria, and then later in other places such as um, Libya, Somalia, and Yemen, and al-Shabaab um, in Somalia. And we have a reminder of, of the expansion of that conflict um, just this week when um, U.S. AFRICOM connect, conducted another um, airstrike against Al-Shabaab. I think that's a, a very great overview that Brian gave of the war powers. I think as it pertains particularly to the PPM, which we're talking about today, about Biden's uh, playbook for direct action, that is drone strikes and special operations raids, uh, this is a key issue that comes up because like its predecessors, the PPM is a policy rather than legal document. So Congress really played no role at all um, in formulating or authorizing this document. And there, are, as such, there are no legal limits on direct action operations um, and, the, and the standards that the Biden administration has reportedly put in place with this document. So Congress, um, as in the past, has been left out of this conversation. Um, and as such, you know, the American people have very little insight um, through the representatives into what the administration is doing uh, with these direct action strikes. Um, and it's really just further entrenching this idea of executive overreach and that the executive branch can take measures um, in the use of force abroad without uh, explicit approval from Congress or the American people beyond, as Brian mentioned, the now um, seriously outdated 2001 AUMF. Um, which has been uh, really uh, stretched beyond its original purpose in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 terrorist attacks to include an ever-expanding, and I should add, classified list of terrorist groups overseas beyond um, the original perpetrators of those attacks. And this is really concerning because the American people don't even know the groups um, at which the U.S. Is, is still at war, and they don't have insight or input into those counterterrorism wars that have been waged continuously since 9-11. Yes, and we're going to unpack a lot of that 
um, as we talk, but I want to go and, and sort of think about some of the history for this as, as, as well. What was Obama's impact on this? He talked about some of these excesses as a problem, uh, even as he expanded some of the operations under this authority while trying to establish guidelines that might rein it in. Can you talk about um, Obama's tenure a, a little bit? Sure, I'm happy to take a stab at that. You know, there, as you know, there's a real tension during the Obama administration over the future of the war on terror. The, the president, at many points, um, gestured towards winding down the war eventually, recognizing that all wars must come to an end. Yet at the same time, he presided over the institutionalization of the war on terror of U.S. Uh, counterterrorism direct action. Um, you saw this in part through his version of the policy framework governing direct action, which is referred to as the Presidential Policy Guidance, or PPG, which was instituted in um, 2013. Um, but you also saw this through uh, various legal interpretations that the Obama administration adopted, um, including um, this concept of an associated force. Now, this is a, an idea that had um, you know, originated in the Bush administration and then was adopted by the Obama administration in the context of justifying the detention of individuals at Guantanamo Bay, particularly those who'd been captured in Afghanistan and um, but did not belong to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And so the U.S. executive branch was forced to justify their detention in courts, and it came up with this theory that um, under the 2001 AMF, use of forces authorized not only against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, but also unspecified associated forces. And over time, this, this, this concept originally um, developed to justify detention was expanded to justify targeting new groups. And you saw that later on in the Obama administration, when in 2016, they eventually announced that um, Al-Shabaab was an associated force Al-Qaeda. And as such, the US was also at war with Al-Shabaab under the authority of this 2001 war authorization. The other major area where the Obama administration expanded the war on terror and the scope of the 2001 AMF was the campaign against ISIS. Um, now, you'll recall in 2014, when ISIS was running, marching across uh, northern Iraq, had besieged the Yazidis on Mount Sinjar, um, and was threatening Erbil and uh, Baghdad, the Obama administration initiated airstrikes um, to push back against um, the Islamic State. And eventually it announced that the legal authority for these airstrikes against the Islamic State, and then the subsequent you know, you know, broader military campaign, was the 2001 AMF. Um, this was surprising at the time um, because <clears throat> obviously ISIS did not exist at the time of the 9-11 attacks and had broken with al-Qaeda. Um, and the administration itself was ambivalent about relying on this um, war authorization as authority for fighting ISIS and introduced legislation into Congress that would provide specific authority um, to fight ISIS. Um, but that died. Um, Congress had little appetite for taking the hard vote um, to authorize the war against ISIS, um, but it would later ratify the Obama administration's decisions through subsequent appropriations. Um, so I think in some, you know, the Obama administration was very conflicted about the, the war on terror, wanted to wind it down, um, but at the same time presided over the substantial expansion that we live with to this day. And just to jump in there, I think that the Obama administration understood well the risks and the dangers of remaining perpetually on a war footing. Um, in his landmark speech on counterterrorism at national, the National Defense University, Obama 
he had this idea that a perpetual war, he said a perpetual war through drones, whether through drones or special forces or troop deployments, will prove self-defeating and alter our country in troubling ways. So the Obama administration really understood um, the the risks that were involved with uh, some of the legal uh, and policy frameworks that they were, were putting in place, particularly the risk that the next administration that came in would be able to undo some of the stricter standards that they enacted in the form of the PPG because it wasn't uh, legally binding as such as an executive order. Um, So there was a lot of effort, particularly towards the end of the Obama administration, to try to institutionalize the standards that they uh, put in surrounding the use of force uh, in general and direct action in particular. And a lot of counterterrorism experts thought that those efforts were largely successful because even though the Trump administration rolled back Um, in significant ways, the safeguards that were in place uh, during the Obama administration, uh, the fact that that framework, the PPG, survived in some form in in Trump's uh, principal standards and procedures, the PSP, and um, survived to a large degree, many saw that as kind of a victory for this notion of constrained counterterrorism, as Lukartik puts it, this idea that even though the executive branch would give itself nearly unlimited authority to conduct um, these targeted uh, strikes overseas, um, they would still try to constrain them and to balance the need to um, to mitigate the risk of transnational terrorism with the imperative to protect civilians abroad. Um, but, you know, I think in, in many ways, the Obama administration was never able to realize uh, its ambitions in these in these areas to, to end perpetual war. Um, it, did, it failed to close Guantanamo Bay, even though that was a huge focus for the Obama administration. It failed to repeal and replace the 2001 AUMF, which still applies to these types of operations today. So despite um, really understanding the risks associated with perpetual war, in many ways, the Obama administration institutionalized and entrenched that war. And um, we saw that you know strikes ratcheted up a lot, particularly in the beginning of the Obama administration, less so towards the end where they were winding down a lot. And that had to do in part to the threat that that they faced from transnational terrorism overseas. Um, But it just goes to show you that, you know, whether or not we abide by this more constrained counterterrorism framework, it depends in part a lot on the the threats that the United States is facing. Um, now the threat from transnational terrorism appears to have receded, at least for the moment. So this idea that the Biden administration can return to a more constrained version of counterterrorism uh, for counterterrorism operations seems uh, like it fits for the threat that we, threats that we face today. Uh, and in many ways, as we can, I'm sure we'll talk about later in the podcast, the um, PPM does in fact return to a lot of the stricter Obama era standards. But I think all of these documents um, and all of the counterterrorism policies beginning from Obama and continuing to today, um, they still fail to end uh, the, the primary problems with perpetual war. They still fail to address um, those risks and challenges in a way that's meaningful and will, will actually put an end to this to this global armed conflict against terrorist groups. Right. So um, Obama expanded these authorities and operations while trying to set some guidelines that would restrict them, um, the Trump administration rolled back those restrictions, uh, had a much more permissive policy with respect to these strikes uh, and these operations. Um, 
And then now uh, Biden is here. We know that he's been active. We, uh, Brian, you mentioned the strikes in Somalia recently. Um, and in October, it was reported that Biden had authorized these new rules of engagement that we've talked about. Brianna, do you want to um, unpack precisely what those new rules are and and explain why they, they fall short? Sure. I mean, so on the face of it, the PPM returns to, to the stricter Obama era standards. And this has prompted some commentators to observe that the Wild West, quote unquote, days of targeted killing under the Trump administration are over. Um, that's a mistake. So the PPM does reinstate the requirement to ensure that capture is infeasible before resorting to targeted killing. So that's one area where it's stricter, although Trump's uh, PSP also did state that capture is generally preferred. It requires that targets pose a continuing imminent threat to U.S. persons, not just to U.S. interests. Um, and it brings back the near certainty standard that the approved targets have been correctly identified and that civilians will not be harmed. Now, under Trump, it was reported that this near certainty standard was relaxed for male civilians so that it held for, for women and children, but not, but not for men. Um, and the PPM reportedly favors strikes against identified high value targets, which the president has to approve. So in essence, it's rejecting this notion of signature strikes against individuals based on patterns of behavior associated with terrorist activity or on unidentified individuals. But importantly, it still preserves the right to conduct such strikes um, if necessary. And this is part of the, the loopholes and exceptions that are problematic with this document, which we'll get, we'll get into a little bit later. Um, the PPM also requires the ambassador chief mission for the country to concur with, operate, with operations that are conducted in those countries, which is an important safeguard uh, for ensuring that diplomatic and broader foreign policy considerations are taken into account with these strikes. And this is something in particular that under the Trump administration was seemingly lacking because you know, we, had the, we had a much more decentralized um, authorization structure for these types of, of strikes under Trump. Um, he, you know, was delegating a lot of this authority for, you know, when and where we should conduct strikes and against whom to lower level commanders in the field with this, these country plans for direct action. Um, and so, and there were a lot of exceptions to the rules and to the country plans, which we don't fully know about. Uh, we don't fully know what all the exceptions were because another, another um, major problem with the Trump PSP guidance was that there was absolutely no transparency at all um, during the administration about what the policies were for direct action. And we only, in fact, learned about um, the details of what the PSP uh, contained after the Trump administration left office and the Biden administration released it. So um, there was much less transparency in terms of how the United States conducts these operations and under according to what standards during the Trump administration than during Obama. And unfortunately, this is also, I think, a missed opportunity for the Biden administration because the Biden administration also has not been extremely transparent about the rules that is following for these types of, of operations. Um, notably, we only learned about the policy guidance through uh, probably an administration-sanctioned leak. We haven't actually seen the guidance itself, so we can't know all that it entails. Um, but there are, are lots of steps that I'm happy to get into uh, that the Biden administration should have taken to increase transparency, to close key loopholes, because there are a lot of loopholes um, where the PPM still doesn't apply and looser uh, standards for targeting um, do. 
And um, it's done very little to ensure, as far as we know, that these uh, that the next administration will be remain will be bound by higher standards for direct action, which, as we saw, was was a key problem under Trump, and maybe so again in the future. So, um, I want to pull on this thread of of transparency for a second. Biden, like his predecessors, uh, says that the list of groups whom we're fighting under this authority is classified. So it's none of the American people's business who we're at war against. Um, the uh, Brian, uh, I think, uh, a crisis group report that you contributed to said, quote, the executive branch has become habituated to making critical decisions about the war unilaterally and behind closed doors. And I noted that um, uh, a reference to Secretary of Defense James Mattis giving the instructions to keep Africa off the front page as these missions expand into Africa. All of this seems terribly undemocratic. We're waging constant warfare without proper legal authority and just make sure the American people don't know about it, it seems to me to be the policy. Brian, do you want to talk about this? Yeah, you're right. that It's um, hard to reconcile this practice with norms of, of democratic accountability, um, the Texas structure of the Constitution, and broader policy interests and ensuring that uses of force undertaken only after careful and public deliberation of the uh, costs and benefits of uh, warfare. So over the course of the last 20 years of the war on terror, unfortunately, transparency as to whom exactly the United States is at war against has been the exception rather than the norm. Um, there was a brief window in the late Bomb administration when the full list of groups against whom the United States is at war um, under the 2001 AMF was made public. Um, subsequently, during the Trump administration, um, the full list was um, classified, and that remains the uh, state of play to this day. So we don't know the full list of groups from whom targets might be selected under this new um, policy guidance that Brianna was just um, describing here. Um, and additionally, um, you uh, touched on another area where uh, uh, visibility, transparency has been uh, spotty at best. And that's in the inconsistent practices of the executive branch for reporting hostilities under the War Powers Resolution. Um, as listeners may be aware, um, this resolution, this law was enacted in 1973 over President Nixon's veto in order to give Congress um, greater visibility on the U.S. wars. Um, and to ensure that the U.S. was not um, secretly fighting wars without congressional authorization. Uh, it was enacted in response to the perception by Congress that the executive branch ha had um, been waging secret wars in Indochina, including um, the bombing of Cambodia. And one of the key provisions of the War Powers Resolution is our reporting requirements, including that any hostilities um, be reported within 48 hours. Um, and the introduction of U.S. forces in hostilities, hostilities here being a term of art, which the executive branch has interpreted narrowly to mean um, exchanges of fire with hostile forces. And there have been a number of instances um, over the years, but particularly during the course of the war on terror in Africa, when U.S. armed forces have been engaged in firefights, which would seemingly implicate this provision, but there was no public reporting to Congress. Um, and there were a number of occasions um, prior to the attack on U.S. forces in Niger in 2017, when U.S. forces were essentially engaged in ground combat in Africa, um, but there was no public um, uh, report to Congress as seemingly required by this law. And so it's quite possible that Congress 
um, uh, missed opportunities to be warned. The executive branch did not properly warn Congress in advance of that um, tragic attack on U.S. forces. And so this is another area where um, there are gaps in what the administration should be telling the public and Congress um, that the Biden administration could try to get to the bottom of and fix. Um, it could try to explain why these past reports weren't filed, how it was the U.S. forces became engaged in um, combat in Africa, and going forward, try to ensure um, greater visibility, both res with respect to the War Powers uh, Resolution reporting and um, by releasing the, the full list of groups that are covered by um, the 2001 AOMF. And in, in addition to those measures, which I think are, are extremely important for increasing transparency, as Brian has said, uh, there are a number of steps the Biden administration could take um, to increase transparency today. And importantly, it can do this without Congress. It can do this immediately. Um, there aren't really any significant national security concerns with doing so. Um, so it's really a question of political will. And unfortunately, and I think this is when we're entering the most dangerous phase of, of the so-called forever wars, Counterterrorism has kind of been deprioritized by the administration, and it's fallen out of public view a little bit insofar as it's no longer making frontline news, at least uh, at least for now. And so, you know, if, if officials are not even under any real public pressure to explain or articulate uh, the policies and legal frameworks that are undergirding these these types of operations overseas. Um, and and I think that's a really dangerous point in these wars where they no longer even speak of a tipping point where we're going to transition out of this war paradigm and back to law enforcement, diplomacy, intelligence and other tools of national power to deal with the, 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 the continuing threat posed by transnational terrorism. So I think there are a couple of steps that the Biden administration should take. And at first, first at a minimum, they should immediately release a declassified version of the PPM. There's really no reason to not to do so. All of the previous iterations of the guidance um, have come out eventually, either through litigation or during the next administration, and undoubtedly the PPM will as well. So they really should just get ahead of it and release it and do a fact sheet and roll it out. Um, the second step the Biden administration can take is to reinstate a new version of Executive Order 13732. Um, which would essentially require the Director of National Intelligence to report the total number of civilians killed in areas outside of active hostilities by um, all government agencies, including the intelligence agencies. And this is important because while the military is already subject to this requirement under the National Defense Authorization Act, at present, we have no insight into um, the number of civilians that might be killed in these types of operations that are conducted by intelligence agencies. Um, during the Obama administration, the DNI did report, um, you know, these, this total number of civilians for all government agencies, and they're not doing it now. But doing so would provide the American people with a much fuller picture of counterterrorism operations outside of active battlefields, which are much more likely to be covert. And beyond these measures, the White House should release elements of its broader counterterrorism strategy including key objectives, how the use of force advances these objectives, and plans for over-the-horizon operations in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. These are, we've, we've barely heard anything from the administration about these, uh, it, its broader counterterrorism strategy and what it intends to do following that withdrawal and, and how it intends to keep conducting these types of, of operations. 
And finally, I think it's extremely important that the administration for the first time should articulate a legal theory uh, publicly for how the global armed conflict against terrorist group, groups ends. Um, until they do that, we, it seems like this conflict is never going to end and there's going to be continue to be indefinite detention at Guantanamo Bay and there's going to be it's going to allow for status based targeting in incidents that in incidents where in areas where we might typically think that well, this is not a, a war zone in any traditional sense of the word. Um, so we really need to know when this war ends and how it ends and what are the what's the roadmap for, for doing so. And I think, you know, sharing this information publicly would allow the administration to shape the narrative that it's committed to transparency, to the rule of law and to the values based approach that it has touted as a key aspect of its foreign policy. So there's really no reason not to take these steps. Um, and, and, I, and I imagine the only reason that it hasn't done so is because counterterrorism just isn't as much of a priority as it used to be with Russia and Ukraine war and everything else that's going on. But this is really crucial for Americans to know um, why the use of force is being carried out in their name, where and how and, on, and according to what standards. I'm interested to hear you guys try to characterize the threat that the U.S. actually faces from jihadist groups. And maybe I'll just slip in a kind of sub-question about um, the legal uh, problems of, of authorizing these strikes, because I think a lot hinges on this notion of imminence to justify strikes, which you know, their operative use of that term in this context seems to evacuate the word of all of its meaning. So, Brian, what is the threat that we actually face from jihadist terrorism abroad? And um, is it imminent in the sense that it needs force uh, to protect U.S. citizens from this danger? I'll just say, based on my own conversations with people still in the administration and on the Hill, there, you know, the range of views covers the entire spectrum as to what the threat is to the United States from um, jihadi groups. And it depends on what aspect of that you're focused on. If you're focused on you know, attacks on the U.S. homeland, particularly sort of complex attacks like 9-11, um, many analysts that, that I speak with rank the, the threat very low. Um, some have gone so far as the, to say that 9-11 was you know, Al-Qaeda's one lucky punch and you know, the likelihood of them ever repeating anything like that is de minimis. Um, Others, however, might focus on broader U.S. interests or the you know, force protection of U.S. deployed um, troops. Um, so that seems to be in, in part what's motivating ongoing U.S. military action against al-Shabaab. Um, and that's so, in some ways that can become a self-licking ice cream cone, um, to use DOD parlance there. That is, U.S. armed forces are deployed to a country, um, they are under threat or perceive a threat from local jihadi group, and then begin using force in unit self-defense. Um, but I think it's certainly the case, and as others have argued, including um, Luke Hardig, that not only because um, these jihadi groups have been degraded over the course of the last 20 years, but also because of the defensive measures that the United States has developed, um, the threat to the U.S. homeland is almost certainly greatly reduced to what it was 20 years ago. And so I think that the, it would behoove the administration to be much more precise and forthcoming in characterizing the threat to the United States homeland from each specific group that it deems covered um, by the 2001 AUMF. You know, I think I am um, a deeply skeptical that um, al-Shabaab as such poses a threat to the U.S. homeland, but if the, the administration thinks that it does, it should um, articulate the exact nature of that threat and substantiate um, those arguments with actual evidence. 
Um, you have both suggested in writing that one approach to dealing with this problem is to call for uh, a replacement of the AUMF, the 2001 AUMF, which would provide for narrower authorities and you know greater congressional checks on executive war powers. Um, so I want to hear about what you guys think the AUMF should be replaced with, but I also want to hear why you think it should be replaced with anything. If this is a low threat, which I think many people concede that it is, even though there's constant threat inflation in, in the policy uh, world, um, if this is a low threat, uh, shouldn't we just return back to the constitutional norm, which says that the president has the power to repel incoming attacks, imminent threats to the homeland, and for any other thing, it need, they need Congress's authority. Uh, that seems to be the way the Constitution is written, and anything that would seek to replace the AUMF would, would pr most likely, given how the executive branch in Congress has acted up till now for the past 20 plus years, it's just gonna be a new um, authorization for basically what's been going on. Um, and even if it's limited compared to what it is now, it's going to be the use of lethal force in multiple countries against multiple groups that we probably are not allowed to know about and with a lot of civilian harm going on, you know? So uh, talk about what you think suitable reforms to the AUMF is, and then really justify for me, if, uh, I'm a skeptical guy on this count, why should we replace it with anything? So I actually agree with you, John. I don't think we should replace it with anything. I think it should just be repealed. Um, I think replacing the 2001 AUMF sends the wrong message. It sends the message that the war on terror in its, is continuing in some form, even if it is a narrower and more constrained form. It sends the message that the, the ar global armed conflict hasn't ended. So I think that we should um, simply repeal the 2001 AUMF. Whether it's politically feasible to do so is another question. And I think you know that's what we're talking about here is what, what can Congress do? What can the executive branch do? We know this is a thorny issue politically. Congress has been reluctant to take any action despite um, lots of statements that it supports repealing and replacing the 2001 AUMF. And the administration has said that it supports doing that as well. But despite all of all of these statements over the years, um, nothing actually gets done. And that is because um, there's a lot of reluctance to even even if we were going to replace it, there's a lot of reluctance to repeal the 2001 AUMF and to limit uh, the United States freedom of action to counter terrorist groups anywhere that it sees fit overseas. So as much as I think that the 2001 AUMF should simply be repealed and that, you know, in the future, Congress can pass additional authorizations for specific groups as need be and as they pose a clear threat to the United States. Um, if we were to repeal and replace the 2001 AUMF, a lot of people have put out excellent analysis on, on what that new authorization might look like, including at Just Security, Tess Bridgman and Stephen Pomper and others have um made numerous proposals for what, what that might look like, including authorizing force just against a specific group for specific objectives, explicitly precluding the use of force um, elsewhere beyond those countries or, or specific groups which are named in the new AUMF. Uh, a sunset clause after no more than three years is a big provision so that we're not 
endlessly at war without revisiting whether those groups continue to pose a threat to to the United States and U.S. persons. Um, and you know, and then having some kind of snapback mechanism, you know, to ensure that that sunset clause is in fact uh, enforced. So, and and then in addition to that, we've been talking a lot about domestic law, but you know, another important aspect of this is international law and ensuring that the use of force is also consistent. Um, with applicable international law, including the law of armed conflict, you said bellum, and international human rights law, which is which is important, um, ensuring that there's not a return to the torture and uh, inhumane treatment treatment that we saw under the Bush administration, um, and respecting the sovereignty of, of other nations. But you know, so these are key areas where we can, uh, where the the AUMF could be improved and reformed. Um, including, you know, having explicit reporting requirements to Congress and to the public. But ultimately, I agree with you that the 2001, it would send an important signal to the American people and to the world if we were simply to repeal the 2001 AMF point blank and say this global armed conflict against terrorist groups that we've been waging continuously since 9-11 has now ended and we're going to move on to the next phase of counterterrorism operations, which will be to generally follow a law enforcement uh, approach and to only seek to to resort to the use of force under the, the war paradigm in exceptional, extraordinary circumstances and as explicitly authorized by Congress against specific groups for specific objectives with a finite timeline. Yeah, so you know, having worked these issues both within the government and now outside, I am a war on terror skeptic. And I think that many of the elements that Brianna laid out for potential uh, reform of the 2001 AMF, they would put the ball squarely in the court of the executive branch to actually make the case to Congress that the use of force is necessary against specific actors in specific places. And with the sunset, the, the administration would have to come back periodically and make that argument again. They, have to, they would make the argument that Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan continues to pose a threat to the United States and this is the same use of military force. Make the same argument for Al-Shabaab. And so th- these are sort of elements that she touched on be good in terms of um, democratic accountability um, and actually ensuring that the costs and benefits of continued armed conflict under the banner of the war on terror um, makes sense. Um, I, I think it's worth touching on the interbranch dynamics at the moment here. The you know executive branch under President Biden have made rhetorical gestures towards supporting um, reform of the 2001 AMF. They've not been particularly forthcoming in, in terms of the details of what such a reformed authorization would look like. Um, and you get the sense that they, at the end of the day, would be perfectly content to uh, retain all the broad authority that the executive branch has, been, has accrued to itself over the last 20 years under that statute. Um, at the same time, unfortunately, Congress has not coalesced around any particular reform um, proposal. Um, there are some who favor outright repeal, others who are content with the status quo, others who might actually um, uh, legislate uh, ex- expansion to this already broad statute. And so, there, and, and there, frankly, perhaps a plurality uh, just w- don't want to take a hard vote on matters of war and peace. You know, when, to the extent Congress has acted in this space in the last 20 years, it's often been quietly through um, retrospective um, uh, uh, ratification of actions by the executive branch, um, including through appropriations to, to broaden the, the scope of the war on terror. Um, and I think many members of Congress, unfortunately, uh, would just assume not have to take a hard up and down vote about whether the United States should be at war in Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, or Syria. 
So I want to see if I can impose upon you both to to zoom out a bit from your from your areas of expertise and and kind of look at this from a thirty thousand foot perspective. I mean, as a matter of routine, over the past twenty plus years, the executive branch is running operations that plainly exceed the scope of their legal authority. Uh, that are decidedly not about protecting the American people from imminent threats. There's a solid argument that we're making the jihadist problem worse in many ways in these various regions. We regularly cause unnecessary civilian harm and death and potentially violate the sovereignty of the states in which we're operating. This is a thoroughly bipartisan problem, and, and Congress has demonstrated repeatedly that it can't really be expected to rise to its own constitutional prerogatives and, and check the executive branch on this. And to boot, it's not clear to me at all that the American people have much of a clue about any of this. Um, and the fact that this conversation happens amid uh, genuinely uh, unsettling debates about the validity of democracy and the rule of law period in this country, uh, I just want to get your sense of how this looks uh, from the 30,000 foot view, uh, wh what does it say about our system that we can't roll back a perpetual war power authority uh, to the president? And we've been going on 20 plus years this way. It's no way to run a railroad. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's understandable, I think, in some ways that the executive branch is keen to preserve its freedom of action uh, to protect, ostensibly to protect the American people. And I think you know, I, I worked in government for a number of years. Brian worked in government for a number of years. And I think we would both say that, you know, there are lots of dedicated um, counterterrorism and other professionals on the line who are really trying to, to working hard to keep Americans safer. Um, but it is an open question whether these operations do, in fact, keep us safer. And I think it can be hard when you're on the line in government putting out fires and dealing with day-to-day -day crises to really step back and and reflect and take a look at the broader long-term implications of of the policies and and what is happening here. So it seemed to me, you know, when I was working at the White House it seemed to me that really the objective for a lot of these counterterrorism operations seemingly had just been amounted to really what was was body counts to keep killing the next threat as it emerged but there wasn't a lot of long-term thinking about whether these types of operations keep us safer in the long term and what might be the the long-term implications of leaving that, preserving that freedom of action for the executive branch such that other actors, or as they say in the U.S. government, malign actors, you know, U.S. adversaries might seek to follow some of the, the legal and policy precedents that the United States is setting uh, abroad. And I think that's deeply concerning. And we're seeing that happened already in Russia's war in Ukraine. We've seen it happen in Iranian operations in Iraq, referring to uh, to the unable or unwilling standard that the U.S. has has um, developed in in order to conduct these strikes overseas without necessarily gaining host state consent in a number of cases. So, I think a lot of the legal and policy precedents that we are setting now are very disturbing, and it would behoove the Biden administration to think more deeply about these precedents and what we can do to ensure that um, we aren't enabling other other states and other non-state actors um, to undermine the prohibition on the use of force and respect for the rule of law 
what can the administration do to prevent future abuses of power that could not only spark national security crises abroad, but also lead to further democratic backsliding at home? Um, these are difficult questions, but I think you know the administration needs to think more seriously about it. And there are some some glimmers of hope to be found in in the New York Times reporting by Charlie Savage on this issue because this hasn't been focused on enough in all of the discussions surrounding the PPM. But the administration also has developed a broader counterterrorism strategy, which um, unfortunately we also don't know exactly what that document entails because it hasn't been publicly released and it should be. But every indication is that it focuses on reducing the risk posed by transnational terrorism, addressing uh, socioeconomic root causes and relying more heavily on local law enforcement. And I think that's the right direction. That's the right approach that we need to go more in. So focusing on risk reduction is right. uh, But at the same time, reducing risk can't be the sole objective. So I think the administration really needs to think more seriously about the issue of risk transfer Um, or the extent to which it is morally acceptable to put foreign civilians at increased risk in order to decrease the risks to American lives. And in my view, the answer to this question cannot be that the United States will remain permanently at war with all of the costs that you mentioned, John, that that being at war entails, the short and long-term costs, to protect against what are increasingly remote risks to Americans that can be, in many cases, mitigated through other measures, including, by the way, defensive measures, strengthening our defenses against terrorism rather than continually going on the offensive um, with the use of force as the primary tool of of statecraft to address this issue. Um, So I think the, you know, the Biden administration would be wise to start shifting now towards an approach where targeted strikes are conducted only in extraordinary circumstances rather than as the cornerstone of counterterrorism policy, which is what they have been to date. Um, And importantly, what I really want to highlight here is that the the Biden administration can do this without Congress. I think there's been a lot of hand-wringing and saying, oh, we can't, you know, it's too difficult to repeal and replace the 2001 AUMF. Congress won't take action. What can we do? You know, there's all we can do is try to constrain the strikes as much as possible under something like the PPM. But there are a lot of other measures that the administration can take without Congress, um, without having to take on some of these politically challenging issues. And they can do this today. Um, and I've mentioned them in, in some of my, you know, my work on just security. Uh, we've mentioned it in that we have a series at just security on the PPM and, and Biden's um, approach to counterterrorism, which Brian has also been a part of. And, and I think there are a lot of great ideas there to, to start addressing this problem um, more significantly at the root of the problem and taking a bigger, a bigger picture approach to counterterrorism and and what needs to be done to ensure that uh, we are keeping Americans safe, we aren't putting foreign civilians at unnecessary risk of harm, and we're considering the the troubling precedents that that we're setting in the long term from both a legal and policy perspective. Um, one thing that I want to touch on in particular is that, you know, as we continue to rely more on local law enforcement. Um, there's something that's really concerning to me because I do think that's the right approach. I think that's the direction we need to go in. But notably, and this is another carve out, one of those loopholes that we talked about in the PPM. um, So the policy guidance doesn't appear to require partner forces to abide by stricter standards, such as the near certainty requirement that civilians will not be harmed. So 
This is also an oversight, which is concerning to me, because as the United States moves away from the war paradigm itself and tries to rely more on partner forces to carry out these types of counterterrorism operations in Somalia and elsewhere, um, I think there's really an increased risk that direct action will be conducted with fewer safeguards in place. So this is something that I think has to be a focus that, yes, the sustainable solution to counterterrorism has to be that we need to rely more on our local partners, and we need to um, shift from from a war footing approach to a law enforcement approach. But at the same time, we have to consider who those partners are and how and whether they're abiding by the legal um, policy and and normative standards that we're setting for ourselves in these operations um, to the fullest extent possible. Yeah, I would add the following. You know, the, the Biden administration has dialed back many aspects of the war on terror and adopted what you might call a GWAT light approach. Um, you see this restraint um, in the reported details of the um, PPM. You see it on the uh, relatively light footprint um, deployments in places like Syria, Iraq, um, in the Sahel, and, and Somalia. Um, there's a few problems with that approach. One, it can be easily re- um, removed, um, replaced um, by a successor uh, administration. And you know, ramp the war on terror back up, or use these um, further expand these legal authorities such as the 2001 AOMF. Uh, you saw this at the in the winning days of the Trump administration, where Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, was trying to lay the um, predicate for applying that um, war authorization against Iran. And so, the administration may think that it's on a sustainable um, war on terror path if we you know turn the dial down. Um, but as long as these war authorizations, including the 2001 AMF, re- remain on the books unreformed, um, they're dangerous tools that can be misused by future administration. Another aspect which we haven't really touched on too much today, but I just want to briefly mention it because it's really important, is that um, you know, as much as the Biden administration is seemingly trying to put stricter standards in place for direct action, there are huge carve-outs for unit and collective self-defense, which represent probably the vast majority of strikes that we're seeing abroad right now, particularly in Somalia, but elsewhere as well. Um, And so, you know, this is the notion that we engage in self-defense, not just for our own forces, but also for partner state and notably non-state forces, such as in Syria. This is a huge expansion of the concept of self-defense as it's commonly understood in international law. So we, we talk about setting troubling precedents, and I think this is one of them. Um, and my fear is that it may lead, the, you know, by explicitly, well, as far as we know, according to the reporting, um, you know, the PPM doesn't apply to these types of operations. Uh, so ex- explicitly excluding um, unit and collective self-defense from the stricter standards, ironically, may lead to increased reliance on these on these justifications for the use of force where um, commanders in the field so they don't have to abide by the stricter standards, are calling strikes unit, labeling strikes to be unit and collective self-defense, even when maybe it doesn't seem like that should be the case. Um, And I think this is a really concerning uh, carve-out that the Biden administration should urgently uh, address as part of efforts to constrain um, counterterrorism operations, Uh, particularly since, you know, as I mentioned before, we don't know whether partner forces are, are abiding by similar, whether the U.S. is requiring partner forces to abide by similar standards as um, as U.S. forces. So it's another loophole where not only can, you know, 
where not only do U.S. operators not have to abide by the stricter standards in the PM, PPM, but also um, local forces on the ground um, that are relying directly on U.S. Advis- advisory support and the provision of intelligence may also not have to meet those stricter standards. And I think there are ways that the Biden administration can address this problem. Um, it should work with the Department of Defense to ensure that efforts to train, advise, assist, and equip foreign forces um, in contain elements of this of the stricter targeting standards in the PPM, as well as any any um, joint rules of engagement. But this is a this is a, a tricky issue that I think is a is a main area for concern going forward as well. Yes, part of what you talked about there is is. Uh... But part of why this is so difficult is because these policies are embedded within broader policies that then they become a part of. So our increasing military presence in Africa and, uh, you know, military assistance to various uh, African uh, states, that puts our troops in certain areas and therefore they then have uh, more likelihood of, of actually being engaged in in a combat role there and 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 that's an important point the other thing that you know we haven't talked about but uh you know we talked about the congress is not terribly incentivized to do anything here and presidents are not going to probably run or a campaign on you know uh reducing their own power in office. But for policymakers and strategists, um, it seems relevant that uh, we really need to prioritize. If we're devoting this much manpower, resources, uh, and blood to a uh, low probability threat, it takes finite resources from elsewhere that might need more um, focus from policymakers and strategists. But I suppose that's a, a chat for another day. Uh, Brian, Brianna, thank you both for, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having us, John.